Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. show today we're looking back on a huge midweek in the premier league with a game billed as the biggest in a decade unfortunately only one of the teams appeared to be aware of this fact as man city (laughs) outclassed arsenal we'll also look at the action elsewhere as chelsea results under frank lampard remain consistent Uh, we now know the identity of two of the three teams that will join the premier league next season and there were big results in spain and italy to boot my name's ryan bailey joining me today a man who's taken his hair out of its bob he's letting it flow down his back erling harland style taylor rockwell you just like to let loose now and then right I mean, just like him, we're assuming that he was doing his hair as that play developed, right? And so he decided to stop doing his hair and instead score. He didn't just unleash unleash the long hair in the middle of a game, did he? I think there's yeah, there was genuine tactical reasons. Pep gave a little signal. He tugs on his earlobe, his left earlobe. It means take the bob out. It means we mean business. We need, we I mean, need a fourth goal to wrap this thing up. The way he went from celebrating the opening goal to within maybe a half second screaming at Adairson about something, I wouldn't put it past <laughs> Pep to also be like, hey, take that hair out. It's too tight. The bun's too tight. I did not enjoy Erling Holland with long hair, by the way. It needs to be up. The hair down, was just, it was an odd look. It was an odd look for me. Uh, let's get into, let's spend a tight 20 minutes on that later in the show, Tater, I say. Joining us, though, a man who loves a cheeky midweeky round of fixtures, Joe Lowry. Do you know (laughs) what the uh, German name for midweek fixtures is? I don't. I also want to be on record as funny as that was. I didn't like it when you said cheeky midweeky. Um, so I just want that to be noted. Anyway, that is please the German. Tell me German that is, that's a German, yeah. That's, that's the German. Oh, I see. I see. What's the Do you hate Germany or something? <laughs> uh, I guess so. Yeah, I think that's where we're at at this point, really. Oh, never change. It uh, is way too early for me to have a good yes and to that. Sorry, Joe. Uh, the, the correct answer, by the way, uh, if in case you're interested, they call it an English Avoca, an English week when they have midweek fixtures as well, because they're not. They call it an English <laughs> week? They do. They put that on you guys? That feels like an insult. It does. <laughs> to the, of the English. Yeah. When you have to do too much stuff in one week, I guess that's what um, that's what it gets called indeed. We only get to use nine of our 12 months of vacation this year, so we're calling it an English week because we have to work yeah. that extra week. Yeah. How, how are we supposed to go and break our legs skiing when we have to do extra fixtures? Oh, mein Gott. Uh, joining us after that terrible impression, wow. rounding out the pack, we've got the uh, the patron of Patreon, the lord of the Discord, Graham Rutherford. Is that my title, Ryan Bailey? Are you putting that on me? I mean, I'll take it if, if you are. I'll say you're patron of the Patreon. I don't know if you're lord of the Discord yet. Do you think you've earned that title there? I'll get there eventually. I get, I'll get there eventually. Lord of Pies is what I call him. Oh, Fantasy that. Monster is what I call him. I'm still not over that from yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my friends call me, Joe. Dang right. 
Oh dear. All your friends on the Patreon, of course. Great. And patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you'd like to join us there. The Discord is a lot of fun. You get access to it by joining our Patreon. Uh, do join us there if you can, listener. In the meantime, we should get to the big event of this cheeky midweeky. Joe likes it. I'm going to stick with it. Uh, Manchester City 4, Arsenal 1. Kevin De Bruyne with a brace in this one. John Stones, the handsomest centre-back of all the land. And oh, Hurling Haaland with John the other Stones goals. Thing. <laughs> I'm not going to give it up, Graham. You can just keep... You know I mean? We'll get into that as well. But uh, anyway, those were the four goal scorers there. This was, Graham, a game that I was genuinely excited about for two days, thinking about it. And I don't have a horse in this race. I was thinking, because I think the media pumped into me, this is the biggest game in a decade. There's so much expectation. The two best teams in the league. And then when it started, it became apparent that City almost were treating it like a training exercise, knocking it around in the first half. Yeah, it was a complete beatdown. Um, at no point did it kind of feel like Arsenal would would score, um, which was remarkable given that late on they they did actually score, and I had uh, money from quite early on in this match on four 0 so I was pretty gutted that Rob Holding ruined ruined that. Um, so as you're right for gambling, Graham, shouldn't do it. Oh, of course, Ryan Bale, you didn't have money on this game as well at all, did you? Yeah, no. but the difference is I won. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> for once, for once. <laughs> Even a broken clock is right twice a day. True. Uh, yeah, at no point did it feel like Arsenal found their passing or pressing rhythm and City, on the other, on the other hand, had both of those things for pretty much the full 90 minutes. And when you, one of the things that dawned on me watching this match, when you consider how well City are playing at the moment, how they just completely dismissed and swept aside Arsenal in this match, it's kind of remarkable. And look, this is maybe not what Arsenal fans are wanting to hear uh, this morning, the, <laughs> it's di- not. the day after. It's not, but it's yeah. kind of remarkable that it's been as close between these two teams as it has been this season. I believe I saw a stat that Arsenal have been top of the Premier League table for 93% of the season so far. And if they don't win the Premier League title, that will be the highest percentage of any team in Premier League history to have been top of the table for that long and not to have won the title. But honestly, by full time, the only surprise here was that City only scored four because Aaron Ramsdale, as dodgy as he was maybe for the first goal, he makes a couple of good saves one-on-one from, um, there was one from De Bruyne in the first half, there was another one from Haaland in the second half. So it really could have been more than, than four for Man City, but it was just complete dominance from them. Graham, you mentioned some level of surprise looking back from this point where we sit now at the fact that Arsenal are still top of the table and the fact that they've been on top for so much of the season. For me, the reason why that's happened is because we've seen Manchester City evolve right in front of our eyes, right? We've had several discussions throughout the year. They go out and sign Erling Haaland. He's scoring a bunch of goals. Does he actually make the team better? We had a a listener questions episode that was focused on that maybe a couple of months ago now. He is a very different number nine from anybody in the world. He's a very different number nine than anybody that Pep Guardiola has ever used. And he's a very different number nine than anybody that, that Pep Guardiola has ever used at Manchester City. So at the beginning of this year, it felt like we were seeing City try to compensate for Erling Holland. Yes, he was still scoring a lot of goals because he will score goals no matter where he goes. But they didn't have the same control over games. Maybe the games were a little bit more open. They were struggling to to build and do the same things that we've expected to see from a Man City team when you have, I don't know, Phil Foden playing as a as sort of a false number nine or Sergio Aguero, who's a much smaller sort of ball control type, but really is going to get in the box, but doesn't exploit space in the same way as Erling Holland. He does give you more control, or at least he gave you more control at the beginning of the year. And I don't think Erling Holland has developed into this you know, Roberto Firmino style number nine at this point. I think that's pretty far from the truth. But in this game, I thought we saw Man City pretty much reach the pinnacle 
of what uh, an Erling Holland and Man City team could look like. And it, it almost is two teams molded into one, right? Because you think about the first goal. City are building from the back. Arsenal are pressing high. You've got Odegaard and Jesus trying to split the field in half to really force City down one side. The ball comes out to John Stones on the right side of Man City's back line. and Or, or center back pairing, I should say. And yeah, he could play Kyle Walker on the right side, but instead Stones looks up, plays a pass forward to Erling Holland in or near the center circle that cuts out six Arsenal players. Holland has Rob holding on his back, bodies him off, controls the ball, plays Kevin De Bruyne forward, and, and De Bruyne does the rest. Holland showing control, showing an ability to bring others into the game, not in a I'm going to drop super deep and link play kind of way, but in his own Erling Holland, I'm a cyborg, I'll figure out how to keep this guy on my back for two seconds to make this play work. I don't think we saw that type of play from Man City consistently or effectively back earlier on in the season. And now that maybe they've unlocked this next stage of Erling Holland bringing others into the game, helping the other players around him be better. I mean, man, this team looks just so hard to stop, and they were certainly hard to stop yesterday. I agree with Joe that Erling Holland is not going to be Roberto Firmino because he's instead going to be Roberto Firmino and Sajo Mane all at once because he can do that link-up play. I agree with you. I don't think he's going to drop like all the way back and open up space for others necessarily, but I think he can do that, can hold up, but then also can go charging forward and combine when, when you have Ke- uh, Kevin De Bruyne being, I guess, Kevin De Bruyne and Mohamed Salah, to continue this analogy. like The two of them alone are basically four players, and I think we saw that on a number of occasions in this game. Holland probably could have had a hat trick before he eventually gets the one, uh, but I, I, I could not get over how the two of them playing in combination sort of tore Arsenal apart. And I do think that's because Arsenal were pretty open and I think wanted to try to kind of stamp their authority on this game. And they very much failed to do that. But Holland and KDB looking as good in combination as they did has to be terrifying to a lot of Premier League defenders. It kind of reminded me of watching Spurs, not this season, but uh, when the Kane-Son partnership has been most effective with Kane dropping in and then Son Son running in behind. Similar sort of thing we've seen from Real Madrid in the Champions League in the last couple of seasons with Benzema doing it and and Vinicius. And look, obviously Vinicius and uh, De Bruyne are very different players, but the fact that De Bruyne is able to do that just shows how well-rounded he is as a player. And that partnership alone, it's kind of... And I do wonder if Pep Guardiola... I mean, I've joked about this this season where he's sitting in a dark room after City have demolished another team and they've played a little bit more of a direct style and he's thinking to himself, I've won, but at what cost? When you see City play like this, and obviously there's the midfield platform and there's interesting stuff going on with their defence at the moment and in the wide areas... But in attack, with pushing De Bruyne further forward with Haaland, he is he is kind of just letting the two of them do their thing and and have their partnership and and the giving them as much space as possible and basically relying on their natural talent and in Haaland's cases his physical attributes. It's very un Pep Guardiola, but that is the, yeah. that is the difference between Guardiola and other managers. Is we've seen other managers fall away, not evolve their style, and Guardiola is willing to change season on season. And this is a definite change we're seeing at the moment. So, okay, Kevin De Bruyne had the freedom to roam, Graham, but surely a large part of that was that Arsenal allowed him the freedom to roam in this instance, right? Because I, I think, Taylor, you mentioned mm-hmm. Arsenal wanting to put their stamp on this game. What I didn't quite see was how they were enforcing that stamp. To me, it seemed like they were not winning any of the duels. They let Man City have the ball. They weren't doing any of the sort of ferociously high pressing we might have seen yeah. earlier in the season, basically. So I don't quite get why they thought this was the play to, to, to make their mark in this manner. 
So on the defensive side of the ball for Arsenal, the, their man-marking midfield was a problem because Haaland kept on isolating uh, Thomas Partey. And then when Partey was passing Haaland on to Holden, Holding, the, the line was too high and it got too fragmented. And that's where you get Kevin De Bruyne's runs in behind causing so much damage. We saw that for the first goal. We saw that for a couple of opportunities. But also on the, on the other side of things, um, City's press was, was an issue for Arsenal throughout this match. It was... The same City pressing unit that we have seen in, uh, previously this season, where they have a front four and then two in behind. And, and there was a period after... 14 minutes was the, the time in this match when I realised Arsenal were in serious trouble. And I, I think that might have been when I put on my 4-0 uh, bet. There was, there was a, an exchange, in, a, a sequence in play around that time when Arsenal just couldn't get out. And, and they couldn't even get to the halfway line. And the ball was fed back to Aaron Ramsdale. He then played it to Gabriel and he sliced it out of play. And every player was under pressure. Every option was closed off. It was suffocating for Arsenal. And they just weren't able to play through um, City in a way that they have done with several opponents this season. And you could see that most clearly, I thought, in the way that Arteta used Zinchenko, where obviously this season we've seen Zinchenko push into central midfield. And whether this was by design or not, or whether it was a compromise from Arteta midway through the game where he realised this isn't working, Zinchenko had kind of chalk on his boots for a lot of this match out in the left wing where he wasn't getting into those central positions and he wasn't getting forward either. So Arsenal just throughout this match had trouble progressing the ball and even the one or two opportunities they did have through Saka or Martinelli their execution wasn't great Gabriel Jesus wasn't getting into high value attacking areas either either and nothing really worked yeah and Graham I think you point out you point out man marking from Arsenal I want to do the same for City right when City pressed high up the field in that 4-4-2 shape that you described so it's kind of a 4-2-4 right you got the the attacking two and you have the wide players sort of joining them in the front line at times and then Rodri and Gundogan joining those players to form really a, a six-person pressing unit. But but even it was more than that from City as well because they would man-mark through the middle at times with Rodri stepping forward. They'd have Ruben Diaz step forward onto Odegaard. They would have John Stone step forward onto Gabriel Jesus. They were desperately trying to deny space to Arsenal in the middle sort of vertical strip of the field. And it worked really well. I think in general in this game, and Ryan, I know you asked him about Arsenal's defending. I think you can sort of tie a thread around all of these pieces and, and put it together for a general theme of this game is Arsenal never really found a ton of rhythm in possession. Sure, they score a goal. It's it's the 86th minute. The game was done by then. Everybody knew it, including Arsenal. Like they, they struggled to get into rhythm in possession. Which, Graham, I think one of the symptoms of that was Zinchenko staying wide. Because when you watch Arsenal, oftentimes they'll build up still with that back four, right? The, you know, a lot of teams will do that. The goalkeeper will be the third player in the box and they'll build from there. And then when they get into more established possession moments, then Zinchenko will tuck inside. Then Ben White will stay a little bit deeper. And all of a sudden you're in your 3-2-5 shape and you have width, you have control centrally. And that's what made Arsenal, uh, that's part of what made Arsenal so dangerous at the beginning of the season but City didn't really let them get into those shapes. They didn't really let them get into those patterns because they were so disruptive with their pressure. And then on the flip side, Arsenal's defensive unit looked like a half step behind all the time because City were taking it to them when they had the ball. De Bruyne was so good in this game. And I know we've kind of already talked about him, but to do it one more time, like he, his decision-making speed is so fast. Like his ability to understand, all right, this is where I'm going to take my first touch. This is the direction I'm going to go with the ball. Or this is where I'm going to move off the ball to receive on either side of Granit Xhaka or Thomas Partey and Arsenal's block. Like He was everywhere all at once for Man City in this game. And Arsenal, it felt like we're just always chasing that you know second or two behind City in pretty much every phase of the game. 
Yeah, I think that's exemplified by the goal. Joe, I love the uh, the idea of talking about uh, KDB's processing speed because I think that is one of those things that really elevates very good footballers to elite footballers. Yes. And in uh, the build-up to his goal, it's a great combination, but it's a great run. And it's a great ability to recognize where the defenders are in relation to the goal, where Ramsdale is. And I think kind of faints cheats as though he is going to try to put this uh to that far post and ramsdale on the reverse angle you can see him just start to take that yeah, little hop and as soon as he takes that hop kevin de Bruyne hits it near post and and finishes it expertly matt turner would have done better obviously uh but i think it shows you how clever and quick kevin de Bruyne is that he's able to do all of that while still having defenders on him while still dribbling at speed it's it really is kind of a cheat code. And then you add in the cheat code of all cheat codes in Erling Haaland, and it's just an incredibly impressive uh, performance from those two. I have some sympathy for Arsenal, though. My sort of takeaway in watching this performance was that the the pre-match talk from Arteta, again, this is complete speculation, so make of it what you will, but it felt to me like he was trying to instill in them, you are just as good as this team. You are the ones who are on top of the table. You are the ones who have led this whole way. Don't back down. Don't be overawed by the occasion. And I think to some extent it had the intended effect, but maybe in the wrong way, that it, it just seemed like Arsenal were just too loose and weren't in that sort of, like, we are going to have to battle for everything and be at 100% the whole game because this is a team capable of taking you apart if you're only at 80% or 90%. Yeah. And I just think... There's little moments like Thomas Partey trying to go in uh, shoulder to shoulder with, I think it was Gundogan, and just getting knocked over. And then the, the play stopped because uh, the referee thought there was a head injury. But even right there, it's like if you're going to try to body somebody in the middle, you got to go for it. And you can't get knocked off and then look like the weaker of the players because all that does is instill more confidence in the opponent and less so in your teammates. Yeah, as well as City played in this game, and they played very well, I do think Arsenal can play better. We've seen a higher level from them this season, and you could make the point that three of the four City goals came from sloppy Arsenal play. So the first one, Ramsdale, look, I'm not a goalkeeping expert, but for my goalkeeper to be beaten from there, um, I understand what you're saying, Taylor, about Kevin De Bruyne feigning to go one side, then going the other, and that's why Ramsdale takes a step to the right before he has to go left, but nonetheless, I, I think he's questionable in that moment. The second goal, Ben White is stepped out later than the, the defensive line for Stones' header. Third goal is, is an easy one. Arsenal give the ball straight to De Bruyne and create the, the transition moment, which isn't ideal. So, of course, City's uh, standard of play forces that sloppiness but the accuracy wasn't there in Arsenal's game at all um, and because City's press in particular in, in the first half it, it means you have to be so accurate um, that was exposed and I actually felt a bit sorry for Arsenal last night because we ha we have seen better than this from them this season they just weren't able to to, to find their best level Indeed let's take a quick break there's plenty more to talk about with this game and the title race we'll do more of that very shortly this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Uh, Graham, I'm going to turn to the most important aspect of this game, John Stones, uh, as we've established. Uh, Now, there's been some interesting debates I've seen coming out of this one. Placing John Stones as like an all-time Premier League centre-back, which I find, I, I like him, but even though I'm not even sure about that one. But it's interesting to see the journey he's had in a Man City shirt, because it wasn't that long ago where he was viewed as a massive liability. And when he first started, there were many liability moments that he had. So it's, is, is this another example of Pep's evolution, getting him to the place he's at now? Does John Stones live in your street? Because that's the only explanation for what's going on right now. <laughs> As John Stones being one of the greatest of, oh, oh, and what was it, Premier League history? I know that yeah. wasn't your suggestion. Uh, but it, still. It look, does feel like it might be. That yeah. was a, that was a very, people are saying John I mean, Stones I, might I be. I don't believe it, but like <laughs> yeah. some, some folks are saying it. I don't know. We should talk about it. Yeah. RB well, in Italy say, on Twitter says. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I will say is that John Stones overall contribution to Pep Guardiola's Manchester City not just this season but in past seasons is probably underappreciated in general I don't I don't know if I'm going as far as saying he's an all-time Premier League great maybe he gets there over the course of his career but we've covered we've covered this ground before certainly Joe's spoken about this previously John Stone's ability to step into central midfield in in the City team I did think that was quite funny that for the last the last few weeks you know City have been perfecting this back three system with stones in midfield and gearing up for this match and using that shape and then the game finally arrives and Pep just goes back to uh, a a relatively orthodox back four with stones in central defence and stupid Kyle Walker in the the back four again (laughs) but it worked very well obviously for City in this this game but yeah John Stones' versatility he is an all-round defender good in the ball he's got physical uh, strength as well feels like England could maybe make better use of him as well. I mean, I know he's a first-teamer for England, but I wouldn't say he's one of the key performers for England at at, at tournaments. So Mm. I agree to a certain extent. Graham, the Kyle Walker bit is one of my favorite ones that we do at this point. Like, I hope that lives on forever. And it's so much funnier when you say it because of your accent. It's just just so good. Um, Okay, my question to the group is, because I asked this question, I think after a Champions League match week, a couple weeks ago maybe it was, And I want to keep checking up on this because I think we're inching closer and closer to when this discussion is relevant. Was Pep's tactical approach yesterday an overthink? Because, Graham, you're right. It was not what he'd been so successful with in the Champions League. He very much deviated from that into a fairly standard 4-2-3-1 with pretty narrow fullbacks. The wingers staying wide. Holland doing striker stuff. De Bruyne doing number 10 stuff. Like, did he overthink that or was he fine? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, well, surely by <laughs> what, definition, what we... you can't overthink it if you storm your opponent 4-1. Uh, well, okay, so what we talk about every time that Man City fail is is Pep Guardiola overthinking so, something. So, so so in that so, case, Ryan, hold on, hold on. In that case, I think you absolutely can overthink a win. right? You can, you can overthink a tactical setup. At that point, what happens with the result is detached from your... Like, you've already set out the stall. Like, you've but, made your decision. So the result is not fully attached to the decisions you're making before the game. But... But the term overthink inherently implies a failure. You have overthought something. Well, then this is like... Otherwise, otherwise you have thought something. Do you guys not see how foolish this discussion is? So you can only only overthink. Like, you can only... 
have a bad my, tactical setup if you lose? Like, that doesn't no, make my, any sense. My, my definition of Pep Guardiola overthinking is when he does something that he has never done before, that there is no past track record okay. for, okay. that there is no evidence to show works in certain circumstances. So what he did in this game was unexpected, but it's a system but not an that Man City have used a number of times before. I... I, I think that's a fair definition and one that I'm happy to go with going forward. I just want us to be prepared, right? Because, Graham, I listened to you and Ryan and Goss on the Champions League show last week. And, you know, I, I know everybody's high on City and I'm super high on City. They've got Real Madrid up next in May. And that is like a different ball game, even than Arsenal at this point. That's a different ball game, seemingly, than Thomas Tuchel's Bayern Munich at this point. Like, that is going to be the most difficult game, or it should be, that they've played so far. And I, I think there's a good chance that Pep Guardiola goes to the tactics board and does some stuff. So I just need to be clear about the parameters. Because in general, I'm kind of against the whole Pep overthinking idea. I think at times he does overcomplicate things a bit. And I do think that has cost City in the past. But I also think it's one of the, the things that most makes this Man City team so effective year after year. Is that Pep is willing to innovate. That he is willing to evolve. And he is willing to do things that are, are risky that other managers aren't. So, okay, so you can only overthink when you lose, which I'm, I'm not buying at all, but we can go with that, <laughs> I guess. And you can only overthink if you've done something you've never done before. All right, those you've are the parameters that I need. you in your bonnet about this overthink thing. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. The whole, like, uh, how can you not, how, what if, Ryan, what if City does something that they've never Joe, done before? It feels, it feels like you're overthinking this conversation. <laughs> I am. I'm totally overthinking it. It just doesn't make sense to me. But that's what I needed to know. Thank you. All right, all right. Let, well, let's talk about the, the evolution thing then. Taylor, I agree um, with Joe. Of Thank you. Of course. Let's I'm just it. trying to throw a wrench into this. Yes, <laughs> Ryan, your question. So, twenty. If if I'm right, the the peak of Man City is the often biggest. regarded as 2017, 18, that mm -hmm. hundred point season. How does that team compare to this? How much of evolution has there been? Which of these teams is better? This is better. It is a confusing question that I will answer based off of my memory, which is like a goldfish, so grain of salt there. I recall that team being very good pretty consistently, whereas I think Joe said this earlier, maybe it was Graham, I apologize. This is a team that has sort of figured things out somewhat recently. I think they've been tinkering with their shape, with their formation, with their approach, and they have slowly fine-tuned it such that at this point... I don't think there's been a better version of Manchester City. And a huge part of that is Erling Haaland just being unplayable. Uh, and I think Joe hit the nail on the head with how he started off unplayable. And then they found out ways to make him even more so. And so I think to have him in this team, it's such a massive difference maker. It's just you expect him to score every game or be around the goal every single game. And then they have so many other talents. Like I forgot about Phil Foden until he just subs in and does Phil Foden things, including annoy Ben White. Yeah. Uh, it's There's so much talent talent in this city team that you don't even really have to consider because they have so many top tier uh, ability players that I think this is the most impressive Man City side we've seen in quite some time, if not ever. Do you know who the starting left back was for that city team that got 100 points in that Premier League season? Fabian Delph. Stones. Fabian Delph, correct. <laughs> Case in point, this team is better. He's, I mean, the, the left back position for Manchester City is a great example of Pep like whiffing on his transfers and then somehow just that not mattering, that he can sign players, they don't end up playing all that much, but other people can come in. With that in mind, I did feel very bad for Zinchenko in this game. Who got booed? I don't feel like that was yeah. really necessary, City fans. Yeah. Uh, Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus, I felt uh, pretty pretty bad for the way this played out. Don't boo Zinchenko. Yeah. But in defense of Fabian Delft, Taylor on that documentary, the Amazon documentary, he did seem to be like a massive presence in the dressing room, at mm -hmm. least. So he might, he might have had some... Some uh, yeah, intangible sway. 
Oh, Delph. Oh, Delph. 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 Yeah. Right, and okay. was also very good at the left back, becomes a central midfielder, becomes a left winger, becomes a center forward somehow all at once. I, I think Delph was was pretty adept at, at that sort of versatility. Even yes. so, I think this City team more impressive. I, they, this I, City team, like, I, I was joking with Man United friends. I know I messaged you all this, but, like, there's a part of me that just thinks, like, may, maybe we don't need to play that FA Cup final. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, like, 3-0 wouldn't be the worst thing, because I don't know how you contain this present City side. Uh, it's why I'm happy that I'm not Eric Ten Hag. Do you remember we had a question in Listener Questions not so long ago about um, what kind of the next tactical evolution is going to be? Mm-hmm. And then Joe talked about how everything has done been done before. And I'm not saying what Pep is doing here is particularly new. And in fact, if you go back to that 17-18 Man City team, Fabian Delph is pushing into central midfield to create a back three in possession. So you can kind of trace what's happening this season even that far back to that team. But nonetheless, City have taken that to an absolute extreme this season. And I have a feeling... Do you you remember when Antonio Conte came into the Premier League as Chelsea manager and he played a back three and it worked perfectly and then all of a sudden everyone's playing back three with wingers? I kind of have a feeling that this City team is going to set the zeitgeist for a couple seasons where we're going to see more teams using these extreme back threes where you have these left and right sided centre backs that are also left and right backs out of yeah. possession. And, Good luck. And that That is a difference. Yeah, you need to find <laughs> incredible players to be able to do that. But that is a difference between previous City teams and this City team, in my opinion. Indeed. All right, let's talk about the title race then. Arsenal top with 75 points. Uh, with 33 games played. City in second with 73 points, two points down. They've played two games fewer as well. Uh, Taylor, the consensus is that uh, Man City are in the catbird seat, as we like to call it around these parts. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. Um, do we do we agree with that? I mean, I could read out who each team is going to play, but I'm not sure if it's even relevant at this point, because City, like... So, so if, if both teams win the remaining fixtures... Uh, City will win the title mm. in the final home game of the season, the penultimate game against Brighton. That's all they've got to do is go through to that second to last game. That feels doable, right? Absolutely. Uh, and maybe they both will drop points along the way, but I think City will drop fewer. Uh, it, it feels like a strange game in that if City lose, obviously the pressure is on them to then make up the ground, but they don't. And so even though they are behind in the table it doesn't feel like the pressure is on them and it kind of doesn't feel like the pressure is on Arsenal because I think there was an awareness that win this game and you uh, like have it all to play for, it's in your hands and now you're relying on Manchester City to drop a bunch of points and I think that makes you then feel if you're Arsenal, like if you go out and maybe you win your next two and then you draw one, it feels like, well, that's it because we've dropped points. I think it makes it much more detrimental to like faith uh, if Arsenal lose points or drop points than Manchester City do. So I would feel pretty comfortable in saying that City will win the title. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Graham, would you concur with that? It feels it feels hard to back Arsenal at this point because if you, if you consider like even the last two games, conceding seven goals in the last week to the top, the basically yeah. the second top and the bottom teams, it's 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 hard to back this form, isn't it? And and Arsenal have some difficult fixtures coming up as well. So, um, I mean, they've got Chelsea this weekend. Maybe that isn't the most difficult of fixtures. <laughs> Traditionally a difficult out. fixture. <laughs> but then uh, Newcastle United away is a, is a, is a very challenging uh, fixture. Ar- Arsenal, this is the second time I've used this, this phrase. Arsenal fans aren't going to like what I'm about to say, but... Second place is still a massive progression for this Arsenal mm-hmm. team. Nobody, yep. nobody expected them to challenge for the title this season. They didn't finish in the Champions League places last season. They took a giant leap forward to get to this level. But I think 
the last few weeks have made clear there's still a gulf between the, between them and the standard being set by Liverpool. And so the challenge for Arsenal now is to be Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool rather than Brendan Rodgers' Liverpool. And so they need to continue on this trajectory and they need to be methodical in where they need to improve and be decisive in addressing that. And I would say over the last couple of seasons between Arteta's coaching and their recruitment, they've done a very good job of that. So they just need to almost stay the course and continue on this trajectory. And you would think if they do that, they will get to City's level at some point. So that is that is sort of the silver lining. The only uh, the, the only thing that could prevent that from happening is City putting 150 million euros on Jude Bellingham this summer and they them also con- continuing on their upward trajectory and the gulf never actually narrowing. But anyway, we'll talk about that at a later date. Stop it, yeah. Stop it. But- the silver lining that, that nobody wanted, as far as Arsenal fans go, they did qualify for the Champions League yesterday. They're the only team in, in England to have officially done that so far. So, I mean, this this team has done better than I think any of us really expected so far this year. The odds, according to 538, because I've done these check-ins periodically throughout the season, so it felt like this was a good time to do another one. And these are not you know perfect and not you know, flawless, but Man City right now have a 90 chance to win the Premier League. Arsenal have a 10% chance. Everybody else has a like microscopic to 0% chance. So, yeah, things swung pretty hard yesterday. So you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance, baby. There's a chance. Big swings and big misses. That's what we like in the Premier League title race. All right, why don't we go to Stamford Bridge? Chelsea new. No. Tw- Chelsea new? Chelsea nil. I was sounding a bit Scottish there, sorry. You, said that, you said that as well as Chelsea played. <laughs> Indeed, that's the best I can hope for these days. <laughs> Brentford beat Chelsea 2-0 at Stamford Bridge. West London derby here. Five defeats out of five for Frank Lampard. Six games to go for Frank to uh, improve on that record. Squawker tweeting, Joe, that uh, Chelsea have scored as many goals in their own net, one, as they have in the oppositions since <laughs> Graham Potter was sacked. So wow. we've got a, a strange situation here, Joe, where... Chelsea fans are full of praise for Frank Lampard, their best midfielder of all time, their top goal scorer, who is also concurrently their worst manager ever. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk a bunch about Chelsea later in the week because there's some managerial stuff going on with them that uh, warrants that discussion. I'm not just talking about Frank Lampard. We're talking about prospective managers. I will talk more about this tomorrow, but I'm pretty much at the point where it it just seems so clear to me that it's not the manager. Like, like we've been through Thomas Tuchel, we've been through Graham Potter, we've been through Frank Lampard. Now there's talk about Frank Lampard being sacked. I mean, like, how, <laughs> how, how, right? How can we ultimately boil all this stuff down to the manager? And I won't do that for this game, and I won't, I won't really do that on tomorrow's show either. What I will say is, and nobody wants to hear this, Chelsea were actually fine in this game. Like, they almost doubled Brentford shots, they dominated the ball, they created better chances. Like, they really were the better team. And I know I sound like Frank Lampard right now, but he's right. Like, this is one of the times, it, one, maybe one of the few times, right? I do agree with Frank Lampard. They were the better team, and Brentford came out, still scored two goals anyway, and this thing is done, and Chelsea's season looks like a joke. What, Joe, why do you think they were the better team, like, aside from possession dominance? Because to me, it felt like Chelsea, when they did have the ball, were much more ponderous, had less of an idea of how they wanted to play when in the attack certainly had less of an idea of how they wanted to play in the build-out. So it felt to me like they were relying on individuals where Brentford, it felt like, played more a more cohesive game. I think I said it felt like 12 times in that sentence, so I turned it to you to tell me what it felt like to you. 
No, so especially in the second half, I thought City, I thought Chelsea, excuse me, created mm. much better chances on the whole. I mean, what I, what I just said was That's not right. only did they control the game, but they also created more chances. They doubled Brentford shots essentially. They were finding more dangerous spots more consistently. They had more shots inside the box. They had several shots like right at the cusp of the six yard box. Not a flawless performance. Like I, I don't want to get it twisted here. Chelsea are not this dominant team, and I don't think they were dominant in this game. But overall, you watch this game 100 times. Do Chelsea lose more than, I don't know, 20 of them, 15 of them? Probably, probably not. So, but, 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 that's the, but that's the thing, Joe. They have played this game like countless times this season and can't stop losing. Yeah. So does that not kind of counter that point? Yeah, but also how many times have we seen this, right? We can, I know there's a, a big gulf between Major League Soccer and between you know, Chelsea and, and the Premier League. But to tie back an example that hits close to home for me, uh, getting my name laminated on a piece of paper by Austin FC owner Anthony Precourt. I like Austin <laughs> FC dominated last year, like at least according to the table. But you look, you look at the numbers, you look at sort of what they're doing actually on the field, and they way overperformed. And in sort of the riding high into this year after finishing second in the Western Conference, and now they look like a bang average team in the Western Conference. They're not winning very many games. They don't look very dangerous. The flip side could be for Chelsea, right? We've seen season long slumps or season long overperformances. I don't know that that's what's happening with Chelsea here. Like, honestly, I haven't done a deep dive into their numbers in, in quite some time now because it just hasn't been relevant. But, like, I think we can look pretty clearly at past examples of teams just in long, long ruts, like well longer than, you know, post-World Cup break and see that, you know, maybe that is still not fully representative of what they are as a team. Again, I don't know that that applies to Chelsea, but I don't think, Graham, that that, like, sort of counters my point, I guess. I just... I, I hear you on the second half, but I think that's because Frank Lampard had to make changes to be more aggressive in the second half because, in my opinion, he got his first half team wrong. And I'm not the first one to say this. Uh, Thomas Frank said, like, I appreciate how much respect Chelsea gave us by basically playing the same team they played against Real Madrid in the same sort of shape. Uh, I guess the implication being that uh, Frank Lampard thought Brentford were Real Madrid. I don't know. Uh, but to have a sort of back five, a midfield three of, what was it, Kovacic, Conte, and who else was in the middle? And Yeah, and thank you, Enzo Fernandez. Uh, And then have Conor Gallagher running all over the place as a one, and then sort of Raheem Sterling up top on his own. It just, it was too uh, reactive to me. It it was too passive. It was too basically like, we're going to have a good defensive shape, we're going to keep a clean sheet, and then we'll, we'll sneak a goal, and then we'll make Brentford get extended. And... I didn't feel like that made a ton of sense. It felt like they were trying to crowd the middle against a Brentford team that want to attack down the channels. I just, I thought he he got this wrong. So I understand where they then do make changes and they are better in the second half. And I would agree that there were opportunities that I think if they're in form, if they have a little bit more confidence, I think they're able to pull some goals back. But I do still think Frank Lampard did not set them up in the best possible way for this game. Lampard said, uh, Taylor, he's picked a starting lineup that delivered a tactical performance, whatever that means. And he said the goal issues predate him. It's a clear issue for the squad, which is all well and good. But as you say, Taylor, playing Sterling up front when you've got like other options on the bench who might be more suitable. And... Do you know who won uh, Chelsea's goal of the month competition for hey. April? Uh, it's Conor Gallagher. Do you know why he won the Chelsea's goal of the month competition for April? <laughs> Did he get the goal? It was the only goal they scored. Man, <laughs> I, I never thought the Richmond Kickers and Chelsea would have something in common. But I remember when the Richmond Kickers were going to donate 
like X amount of money for every goal scored in a month, and they did not score that entire month. So they had to pivot to <laughs> they donated the number of saves that the goalkeeper made in that month, which is a nice pivot. Uh, I didn't expect Chelsea to have to go something approximating that, but here we are. Here we are indeed. And uh, on the big thing this week, we'll be going a bit more into detail at Chelsea Football Club. So look out for that. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll look at the rest of the Premier League. We'll go around the continent. And of course, the CONCACAF Champions League. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's go to the Hammer Bowl. West Ham 1, <laughs> Liverpool 2. A comeback win for Liverpool this was. Uh, Liverpool Taylor have now won three games in a row and they've got Tottenham visiting on Sunday to make it four. Wonderful. The Hammer Bowl. That's a new one. You don't like it? I do like it. I just wasn't prepared for it. I also like Liverpool resurgent. It's always nice to have a strong Liverpool team under Jurgen Klopp. Uh, and especially against the West Ham team who have struggled at times, have been better of late. So I think this was a pretty important win for Liverpool, which obviously brings them further up the table at a time when other teams are falling off. So I think for the way things have been for Liverpool, combined with some of the injuries they've had, does feel like they are ending on a more positive note than I would have yeah. expected. And and Trent Alexander Arnold in particular in this game was was excellent and and it really feels like Klopp is figuring something out with Alexander Arnold. In fact, I, I in the last uh, segment I spoke about City setting sort of the zeitgeist with this back three and pushing defenders into midfield, which again I know is nothing new, but. I have to imagine that Klopp has seen what Stones is doing. I don't know, Stones and Alexander-Arnold as central operators are very different, Alexander-Arnold as a creator. But nonetheless, I have to imagine that Klopp has taken some inspiration from that and he is just having a, a greater influence on the game when he's in that central position. He's got uh, five assists for April, which is the most, I believe, of any Liverpool player in Premier League history in a single month which is quite impressive. He's he's just able to break the lines with passes and he, he plays these very quick switches of play and, and all that good stuff. And it is still a little bit ropey in terms of providing the safety net in behind him. Jared Bowen was very dangerous in this game. Lucas Paqueta, Ryan, your favourite, uh, scores yeah. a lovely goal in, in, in this game. Your World Cup prediction was just a few months too late, maybe if he'd produced that in, <laughs> was, in Qatar. I was going to say, I'm still hurt by that, that he didn't show as I hoped he would in Qatar, but this kind of makes up for it. Nice yeah, goal. he's got it in him. See, yeah. there we go. <laughs> we have the evidence now. So yeah, as I was saying, defending in the half spaces for Liverpool and behind Alexander Arnold is still a little, little bit of an issue, but if they can find the personal to do that, like City have with Akanji and Aki, I think Klopp with Alexander-Arnold in that position could be on to something for next season. One just quick thing for me. There was a moment in this season when I think Alexander-Arnold is substituted off. I talked about it on the weekend review and Klopp has some some pretty biting comments about him 
it felt like the the fan base had sort of soured. And and I thought there was a chance that we would not see Trent Alexander-Arnold again for Liverpool, or that at the very least this would be his last season. And so to Graham's point, I think it's very it's a very strong thing if you are a Liverpool supporter that Klopp seems to have gotten the best out of Trent Alexander-Arnold again, seems to have found new ways to keep him involved and kind of bring his confidence back. I think that's the sign of a manager who's been there for a while and an adept manager at that. But for a person who, for whatever reason, has always been a fan of of Trent Alexander-Arnold, I'm excited to see him back and playing well. Indeed. Nottingham Forest got a 3-1 win over Brighton, which, as Joe mentioned, uh, entitled Arsenal to Champions League soccer next season officially. Uh, Big win for Arsenal and Forest, I suppose, this one. Forest coming out of the relegation zone with this one. Graham. Yeah, this was a, a huge result for them because it felt like every team around them in the table was is, is picking up points at the moment and they were on a run of 11 games without a win in the league. I, I thought Brighton were actually the better team for a long period of this match, particularly in the first half. Um, and when they took the lead, they, they deserved it. And, and even when Forrest came back into it and equalised, there was always that threat of Brighton on the break and it was a golden opportunity for Matoma in particular to make it 2-1. But... Forest were very patient. They made the most of the mistakes that, that Brighton made as, as they tired. I thought Brighton dropped off quite dramatically in the second half. Keep in mind, they played extra time against Manchester United on, on Sunday, so that might have been a, fa- a factor. And in terms of their attacking play, Forest were quick and physical and they got numbers forward. And yes, they got some luck and they had a couple penalties, one that they missed in, in, in this match. But they earned that luck, so very important for them. Um, Brighton starting Facundo Buonanote, um, who I hadn't heard of before. I believe this was his first Premier League start. I swear they roll out some super talented South American kid every month. Uh, last month it was Julio and Saiso. They just cannot be stopped. They've got to have some sort of machine at this point doing this for them. It's it's all it's all AI. That's the explanation. <laughs> Give me that name, that surname one more time, Graham. Uh, <laughs> um, Facundo Buonanote. I okay. think. Buonanotte's a uh, good night in Italian, so maybe some... And Graham, if we, if we could, can we just get you to say squirrel real fast? Squirrel. Thank you. <laughs> Purple bugler alarm. <laughs> He's getting better. He's classes. getting better. He's there practicing. Uh, moving on to, uh, we have uh, learned from the championship that two new entrants coming into the Premier League next season will be, of course, Burnley, uh, who won the championship title on Tuesday evening with a 1-0 win over Blackburn. By the way, listener, Burnley and Blackburn, the two worst places in the UK. Never go there if you come to the UK. Um, Sheffield you see that every time. It you just never let it go. They are terrible. Uh, okay. okay. You say that about every place that isn't within it like does. 10 miles of London city centre. Yeah, but there's there's peaks and troughs and there's real troughs, you know. So. <laughs> and even then, like Tottenham was getting it a couple of weeks ago. There's real troughs. <laughs> I'm I'm a very bitter person, evidently. But don't go to Burnley or Blackburn. Uh, also joining Burnley in the Premier League next season, returning will be Sheffield United, who had a two 0 win over West Brom. You got a lot of nice things to say about Sheffield. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, Sheffield's fine. W- working Sheffield's class fine. community. Come on, let it rip. It's yeah. not a full trough, is what we're learning. It's not a full <laughs> trough. Indeed, yeah, they, they are, they are not, they've not bottomed out in Sheffield. Don't worry about them. Uh, they are back after two years in the championship. We've known, pretty much known both were going to be coming up for some time, but it's official now. Luton, Middlesbrough, Coventry and Sunderland are in the playoff spots right now. And we've mentioned, I think, was it on Listen to Questions, we talked about Luton, Graham? Yeah. Um, Luton are a tiny team who have who've been in the top tier many a year ago, but their stadium, Kenilworth Road, yeah. It is not Premier League standard. It's one of those ones where you go in 
uh, to the gates via like through people's front doors. Yeah, like, I was going to mention yeah, that. So we yeah. didn't we didn't mention that when we talked about Luton Town on listener questions. Well, but what you're talking about exactly the same thing that one one of the gates, one of the turnstiles, is below, like is in a terraced house. Yeah, and so above the turnstiles, there are people's like living rooms and bedrooms. What yeah. incredible! <laughs> on, on, on at least two sides of the stadium, it's completely like row terraced houses which are blocking it in. Yeah, that's yeah. A, so that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and actually, I'm looking um, at it now. It reminds me, Filbert Street, Leicester's old stadium, was the same thing. I remember going there and you go in through, it feels like you're walking through someone's living room to get into the stadium, uh, <laughs> which is probably why they have a new one now. Uh, going over to Spain, uh, Real Madrid had a 4-2 loss to Girona, uh, which we mentioned, Joe, uh, briefly on yesterday's show because of an on-loan MLS player from NYCFC, part of the fantastic City group that Girona is part of, of course, Tati Castellanos getting four goals in this game, all four of Girona's goals. The first player this century to do that against that team. Sorry, do you want to say that surname one more time? Because you made Graham Graham say its surname twice earlier. Would you like to run that one back? Castellanos? Castellanos. Yeah, the double L is, I think, a yeah in this particular case. Tati Castellanos. There it is. We got there. Yeah, I mean, really, it was Real Madrid losing to Tati Castellanos because he scores all of the goals for them in this game. You mentioned how rare that accomplishment is in a game like this, in a moment like this. An incredible performance from Tati, who's on loan there. You mentioned it. NYCFC loaned him last season instead of selling him, basically, because they thought that a season on loan in La Liga at Girona, their older sister club, let's say older sister club in the City Football Group pyramid, uh, they thought that would increase his valuation, and, and I guess City Football Group thought there was some value in that. And I think it's safe to say that that's happened at this point. So he's been fine this season, not truly great, but but capable in La Liga. And this four-goal outburst is a reminder to everybody of how good he can be. He is a really dangerous player in terms of finding space, and, and that was really the theme of his goals. He needs he doesn't fully need others to create chances for him, but I think Tati's at his best when he can move off the ball and arrive in space to, to sort of unsettle opposing center-back duos or trios or whatever that looks like, and that was certainly the case in this game. Real Madrid in the past have struggled to deal with really sharp off-ball movement, and I think when you look at their squad, you think about the midfield personalities, even though that's starting to, to change year over year. You think about some of the players in the back line that are a little bit older. You, you can see why that might be, and Tati Castellanos kind of took him to task in this game. It was it was fun to watch. I kind of forgot Tati was in La Liga, and now I don't think anybody, including potential bidders this summer, will uh, will be forgetting that for the next couple of months. Todd yeah. Bowley, 130 million pound bid coming in. Who says no? Who says no? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful stuff, uh, Graham. La Liga title race is back on Real Vallecano two, Barcelona one. Right, no, it's right. Not. It's all happening. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, man. yeah. La Liga is just a mess at the moment. So in 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 Davis Cup tennis, right? If a, if a match is done before the final rubbers, you can like the two teams can meet to to, to uh, agree together just to chuck the rest of the of the tie. That kind of feels like what's happening with Real Madrid and Barcelona at the moment. Um, this was another really weird, underwhelming performance from Barcelona that we have seen a number of times in recent weeks. Anyone with the theory that Pedri being back would make a difference uh, kind of had that theory quashed because he was he started this match and it was still bad. And obviously he's still working his... I'm kind of jesting, half jesting there. He's still working his way back from, from injury. So this certainly isn't on him, but there was absolutely no control from Barcelona, no creativity. They looked shaky at the back. 
Uh, Lewandowski scores in this game. It's a nice finish, but generally he looked quite blunt as well, um, which has been the case for, for a while now. They just look really short of ideas at the moment, Barcelona. The number of times they just stuck across into the gloves of uh, Dimitrievsky, the goalkeeper in this match. And it was Ryle who looked the, the more dangerous of the teams. Isi was a, a menace on the right side. Barcelona had a couple of players booked trying to stop him. Fran Garcia was very good on the left side. He scored the second goal in this game. There's a lot of talk about him getting a call up to the Spain squad for the next international window, given that that is a position Spain need to find a long-term option for, and this didn't harm his case at all. Um, Barcelona have obviously had a good season, a better season than I expected. They're going to win La Liga title. But it really feels like, you know how you get save points in video games? Um, it feels like they're staggering to the save point where they can win the title and they can get yeah. to that stage and, and not fall any further backwards and then this summer go again. But this team is far from complete. They have given themselves a good platform, but they are staggering towards the finish line. Graham, uh, feel free to dunk all over this question if you want to. Uh, but talking about Barca's defense for a moment, we had what Marcos Alonso, I think, starting as one of the, the center backs. We had Jules Koundé, who as far as I know, is usually a center back, can play right back, has been playing right back for Barcelona. Are we sure Sergio Dest doesn't make this team better, doesn't help this team? Are we sure Barcelona don't need him in there at all? Well, one of the criticisms from Koundé in this match was that his one-on-one ability was absolutely terrible and he was getting he was getting toasted by Fran Garcia ah. down that, that left side every time. Yeah. I'm not sure Sergio Dest uh, improves on that match. Maybe he gives them more I... of a, an outlet going forwards, but I would argue that Rafinha already does... Rafinha is actually one of the few players the last couple of months who has come out of that period without any sort of credit. So the one thing that Dest might add to this team, I would argue Rafinha is sort of already offering on that right side. So I I have always been a Dest fan. I think Jules Koundé, by trade, is still a central defender. I would certainly prefer having Jules Koundé and Ronald Araujo as the centre-back pairing over, well, basically any pairing that involves Marcos Alonso or Eric Garcia. But nonetheless, I'm not sure he makes a massive difference to this Barcelona team. All right, yeah, Barcelona still 11 points clear with eight matches to go in the Liga. The moral is they've not been punished remotely for all that wild financial uh, behaviour they had. By the way, nor have Man City, which still seems to be a thing that like we talked about and then went away for a while, but I feel like that investigation <laughs> is ongoing. Uh, I look forward to them being docked the exact number of points it takes for them to still win the title by one point. It fell into a shredder somewhere. Yeah, yeah sure. Some point. <laughs> Taylor, just be grateful that you're not in a press conference right now where you're being told that the press conference is here to let you know that the investigation is ongoing. And oh, it is ongoing? We'll be able to give you more information uh, as the investigation continues to ongo and, and once it's yeah. through ongoing. Once it's concluded, it will no longer be ongoing. And at the point of conclusion, when it is no longer ongoing, it can then be confirmed to not be ongoing and then information cannot be made public. Got it. Cool. Perfect. Awesome. Cool, 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 cool. cool. Uh, Taylor, if a journalist in a Man City press conference does bring it up, Pep Guardiola, he tugs his left earlobe yeah. and Harlem runs in and lets his hair fall down and everyone gets distracted. That's a callback. Uh, Copra Italia into one, Juventus nil, into going through to the final. 2-1 on aggregate. Federico Di Marco with the decisive goal here. Graham, did you catch this one? Yeah, I did. I watched this one back uh, this morning in full. Juventus really offered very little in this match where they mustered just one shot from inside the box. Very dis- disjointed performance. Uh, Inter's three-man defence was just able to soak up anything that came their way. I found Allegri's setup for this match 
uh, peculiar because he had Chiesa and Di Maria paired in attack with Milik on the bench and injuries was was a factor here. Vlavic is out injured. Moise Kane is out injured as well so that was a factor. But I guess the idea was to make the most of the opportunities on the counter and play through Inter that way. That just didn't happen at all though and Chiesa was visibly frustrated at times at the lack of pressing from some of his uh, Juventus teammates and that lack of energy was pre- preventing Juve from actually getting in the ball uh, getting on the ball in areas where they could do something with it on on the break. So Inter very much deserved to win this. I don't really feel like Inter even had to move out of sort of third gear for this match. DeMarco was very good. He's kind of earning a reputation as a big game player for Inter. A nice finish, a very good pass from Nicolo Barella for the for the winner in this match. He kind of plays this disguised ball. Dzeko's making a run as well, and everyone thinks the ball's going to Dzeko. Instead, the space opens up for DeMarco through the middle. He plays it through to DeMarco. He finishes. But yeah, Juventus on the back of this, are th- I think uh, Allegra's going to face some questions because this was pretty underwhelming from them. Uh, the winner of this one, which indeed is Inter, are going to be facing the winner of Fiorentina against Cremonense. Let's second... go, Cremonense. Yes. Bottom of Serie A can still make a Coppa Italia final. Wild, isn't it? Yeah, they are 2-0 down on aggregate as they go into the game, which is tonight as we record. Um, the final taking place at the Stadio Olimpico. I think I'll try and go along to that. Maybe make a Patreon video for fun. Okay, one last thing to deal with on this podcast, Joseph Lowry. CONCACAF Champions League. Do you think that'll catch on? Probably not. Uh, Philadelphia won, LAFC won in the semi-final first leg. I uh, I think, Ryan, the thing your jingle's missing is Scotia Bank at the beginning, because mm-hmm. let's not forget it is the SCCL, at least on all the broadcasts. Okay. So um, if you can work that into the verse somehow, um, I think that would be ideal. Yeah, we had an MLS Cup rematch. These games have, have usually been crazy between these two teams, and the ending of this game certainly was. It was the first choice 11s on both sides had some scuffles, some CCL-ness in here. So the goal that the Union scores, a penalty kick from, from Gazdog, and they get it from a handball. Ultimately, it's called a handball on Kellen Acosta. Taylor, did you see this? Did you see I this did. somewhere? It was so my favorite thing of the day. It's, it's the best part of this game, and it is totally CONCACAF in Ow. every single way. So the ball hits Kellen Acosta. It is hard to see, to be fair. It yeah. is hard to see. But he's got sort of his elbow up almost like in line with his chin, maybe his left elbow, or I guess it was his right elbow. And the ball comes in and it's really hard to tell whether it hits the arm of Kellen Acosta or his head. And Kellen Acosta then to try to sway the referee in the VAR takes care to rub his head. Like, Oh man, that ball like hit me in the head. Wow. That hurts a lot. Like, man, I, I, I got, I got dinged. And then they go to VAR and decide that, no, it, it hit your arm, bro. It's going to be a penalty And he still kick. did it. As they're getting set to take the penalty, then you can see him still like, it did still so hurt, committed. Though. I promise So committed to the bit. It was so good. <laughs> so uh, Philly go up 1-0, and, and the crowd goes crazy. Like, this is a huge result for them. They're in the driver's seat going into the second leg uh, Tuesday. That'll be Tuesday of this upcoming week. And then LAFC come back, and they sort of feel inevitable right now. They're undefeated in MLS play. They've lost one game, but that was only the, the second leg against Alohalense. Earlier on in this competition, Kellen Acosta, of all people, get the goal. And I don't remember who tweeted it. I think it was Weeby tweeted that he should have celebrated by rubbing his head after scoring a goal of his own, which would have been so good. He doesn't. He doesn't. Go ahead, Taylor. It's got to be so frustrating, though, for Philly, because that is so much so. dying moments. And it's just I forget which center back gives it away, but it's just a giveaway when it does not yeah. do, need to be given away. I think it was Elliot uh, could have just cleared it long, could have tried to keep possession. Instead, he gives it basically right to LAFC and they come back down and score. Yeah. It is a fortunate finish, I would say, from Acosta, but it's a finish all the same. Joe, uh, Tom Bogart at halftime tweeted that like it was a completely dominant performance from, I believe, 
uh, Philly. Uh, that was met with some consternation by, I'm going to assume, LAFC fans amongst others on Twitter. Overall, did you feel like this game, the, the scoreline reflected the way this game played out? Or did you think one team, I know Deserve got nothing to do with it, but sure. did you feel like one team deserved to win over the other? I thought this was a pretty fair scoreline. I think okay. Philly were, were slightly better. The The biggest edge that I saw in this game consistently was uh, Mikel Ure and Julian Carranza, Philly's striker duo in their 4-4-2 diamond, up against LAFC's two center backs, such as Aaron Long and, and Jesus Murillo. I thought that matchup gave LAFC a lot of trouble, and, and they weren't really made to pay for it. I don't think Philly were very clean. LAFC weren't very clean. I thought in general, outside of the last 10 minutes or so of this game, this isn't one that I will remember for a long time. Other folks seem to enjoy it more, which is great. I'm happy for them. But that 2v2 matchup in the back gave me some some questions about LAFC to the point where I'm almost wondering if Steve Chirondolo will tweak something tactically for the second leg to give his side a little bit more stability. I don't think he will because he seems pretty committed to this 4-3-3 shape. And I think that's fine. I think LAFC are savvy enough to maybe adapt without changing their shape. But on the whole, Taylor, I thought it was a fairly even game. Philly had the slightly better looks. I liked their matchup against LAFC center back. I think that will be an area of, of strength for them going forward. But in general, I thought this was pretty sloppy. Uh, I don't think either team looked at their best. But between the field and between the fact that both of these two teams are very direct, like LAFC have become, and they talked about this on the broadcast, to their credit, Stu and, and John Strong, talked about how LAFC have been more aggressive, more direct, more vertical this year. That's something that Steve Trondola wants to do because of how many games they're playing between a deep CCL run, between MLS play, between U.S. Open Cup, between Leagues Cup, between playoffs. Like, they've got a lot of games on the calendar and not a lot of depth. So they're being a bit more pragmatic. And in general, I thought it made for something of a of a messy game. But at the end of the day, LAFC, regardless of whether they deserved it or not, Taylor, to your point, you know, they're in the driver's seat coming into the second leg away goals is still Cap a thing in the CONCACAF Champions League. They're in the catbird seat. Well said, Ryan Bailey. So they are in, in really the spot that they want to be and have control over the second leg. Again, that's going to be on Tuesday in L.A. I forgot that away goals are still in effect. Okay, yeah. so that, that makes it even spicier because it does feel like neither of these teams particularly cares for the other. Uh, we did have no. some slightly spicy moments. I'm expecting some fully spicy moments uh, in the return leg uh, next week. I'm excited. Same. Oh, away goals. How archaic of the Scotiabank. I'm calling it the Scotiabank now, Joe. Is that okay? Good. That's what they yeah. want. That's what they want, Ryan. They do. The Scosche. They do indeed. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the winners of this Scosche semifinal will face the winners of Tigres and Leon. Uh, Tigres having a 2-1 advantage in that one. All right. Cheeky midweeky. Pretty much reviewed, Joe. We will uh, try and trademark that, as is your insistence. But for now, Joseph, thank you very much for your contributions. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always, my good man. It was my pleasure to look it up, and the German for cheeky midweeky is the chicken vin beacon. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that checks. That mm-hmm. checks. Uh, uh, Graham, buona notte to you. Grazie mille. Ah, buona notte to you too, Ryan Bailey. Indeed. And listener, thank you very much to you. We'll be back on the feed with the big thing very shortly. But for now, bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.